Hello and welcome. I'm Bo Simmons, editor of the Stillwater News Press, and I'm joined by Studio Stillwater's Chris Peters. Howdy. City editor Michelle Charles. Hello. And news editor Tanner Hollibar. Hey, how's it going? And we are in the newsroom. We're just going to do a little recap of the previous week, and then we'll talk a little bit about the things we have coming up. I think uh, probably one of our top stories is the return to classroom. I don't know if it's a continuing saga, Michelle. I don't know if we call it that, but we did get a little teacher perspective on how things are going. So you talk to the local union rep and some other folks and yeah, why don't you just bring us up to speed? Okay. Um, yeah, I would call it a saga. It, it feels like a saga at this point. Uh, and you have, you know, I mean, you have people on both sides who have felt very passionately about it. We've had a, a, a lawsuit filed. So, I mean, there's been a lot going on around this. Ultimately, um, you know, it was a matter of, you know, getting the kids back to school, which everyone did want to do. But people had different ideas about how to do that safely when you could do that safely was really what it boiled down to. The district is finally ready to pull the trigger, as it were, and bring the kids back five days a week at the end of spring break, starting on March 22nd. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of uh, discord and and just sort of uh, maybe not lack of maybe lack of communication or people kind of uh, making assumptions about what other people are thinking is how it seems to me as I look at it. But basically, uh, there are some parents who I believe have been pretty vocal about feeling like teachers just want to go back to the classroom, that they were too fearful, that they should just hang it up if they just couldn't handle it. And you have teachers who feel like they're really looking out, not just for themselves, but for the children as well. They want to be sure that everybody's going to be safe. And then you've probably got people, you know, all across the spectrum in between, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, the school board was going to have a final review this week of um, of the safety plan that is designed to get kids back into the classroom again after spring break ends. And ahead of that, there was a community member. She's a researcher who has been, you know, very concerned about whether the data that's been coming out has been consistent and has been um, accurate. So she's basically, she and a small group of other people have set up a Facebook group where they're putting out their own data, their own charts, and they're keeping track of this stuff. She decided that there really hadn't been enough discussion about whether the four factors that are really within the school's control in terms of keeping people safe, because, you know, the CDC put out a um, put out guidance that suggested that, you know, kids should get back to school, that that should be the priority in your community. And they laid out 11 different things that need to happen in order for that, that need to be in place in order for that to happen. Uh, You know, and a lot of it's community stuff that the school doesn't really have control over. Mm -hmm. But the things that the school does have control over are masking, hand washing, uh, sanitation, and uh, physical distance. The 
problem is that you've got the teachers who are uh, basically tasked with enforcing that, making sure that's in place. And she wanted to have a discussion about whether the teachers felt prepared to adequately do that with their full class in there. Because up till now, we've been on an A-B schedule where you basically only had had half your students at a time. So it was a little easier, right? A little bit easier to control, yeah, probably with, I'm guessing, you know, a dozen to 15 or so or less students. And I'm, I'm sure that was also... Uh, a, a little bit of a glimpse of what a smaller classroom size would look like in, in normal times for them. I'm, I'm sure that was quite pleasant. Oh, I'm sure it was. And, you know, a lot of them uh, in the survey that she did, um, what really came out was that they weren't so worried about masking because they said, a lot of them said that's basic classroom management. You can do that. If you just have control of the kids in your class and you're staying on top of things, hand washing as they got older, got a little bit tougher because you can't follow a middle schooler into the bathroom and make sure they're washing their hands. You just have to have hand sanitizer everywhere. Right. And just ensure everyone's constantly kind of bathing in Purell, as it were. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the distancing was really where they felt uncomfortable. And the school board itself has had discussions where they've said, you know, once we get all the kids back, we can't do six feet. We know we can't do six feet in some situations we're lucky to do two or three feet. And, you know, they've been kind of banking, at least with the littles, the younger kids. Uh, you know, if the masking is inconsistent, if there's not as much distance, that they don't tend to get as sick. And that re- there's some research anyway that seems to show that they're less likely to spread it. Anyway, all of that went through uh, the school board, frankly, because we did a story about it, was kind of forced to deal with the survey because I don't know if it would have been discussed otherwise. Um, I, at least the author of the survey was under the impression that it might not have been. Uh, so that was part of the that was part of the issue. But anyway, uh, they they talked about it and determined that they are going to proceed and they are going to go back to school five days a week, all the kids through high school. Originally, they were just going to do the younger kids and then keep the older kids out a little bit longer. They're going back with everybody five days a week through seniors in high school, and they're going to monitor it very closely for the first couple of weeks and see if there are any problems. And a few things working in their favor is community spread is fewer than probably 10 people um, eat every day. And uh, as a case-by-case basis, you know, there are probably fewer than 10 cases now every day. And almost every teacher who wanted to is able to be vaccinated, right? I mean, just, right. just about. There's, right. You know, um, you know, one of the hang-ups with uh, a few of the teachers was just that, you know, the kids, of, of course, you know, kids younger than 16 can't get vaccinated. But anyone, you know, 16 or over is eligible now. Uh, but not everyone is going to have had time to have get gotten their second dose. Even the teachers who were vaccinated at the clinic sponsored by the school district will not all have had their second dose yet when everybody goes back to school. But, you know, with everyone 16 and above, you know, eligible for the Pfizer vaccine, that picks up, you know, pretty much the whole high school which is the group that they've been the most concerned about in terms of being uh, independently mobile, very social, and old enough that they are apparently a little bit more likely to uh, get a little bit sicker or be able to spread it more. So, I mean, there are some really hopeful signs. And as you said, the community spreads down, hospitalizations are down, uh, things are trending in the right way, and they're counting on it continuing. Crossing fingers. <laughs> right. <laughs> Definitely. Full disclosure, um, 
all, just about all of us in here, all of us in here have had at least a first dose, right? Are we? Yes. Yeah. How about that? Double dose. <laughs> yeah. Next Friday, I'm eligible for my second dose. I got the Pfizer vaccine. Nice. Right. Okay. We talked a little last week about uh, the change in events, the things we lost, the things we're getting back. And Tanner talked to the, uh, is it the creator or is it uh, the just the person now running the Red Dirt Film Festival? Well, it's uh, Damon Blalock. Uh, he's the director. Yeah. Um, okay. It's been a few different people here and there. Uh, you know, Damon was over in Europe for a little while, but he's been the kind of the head honcho over there um, as far as planning and everything for the last few years. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, he was still pretty adamant on trying to have a lot of the same things that you know, even though this festival will be virtual, he was still pretty adamant that there's a lot of these things that, you know, it's kind of what a film festival is, is you have time where there's panels where you can hear from the directors, you can hear from actors, you can hear from people who worked on set, who did makeup, all kinds of these different things that maybe you don't get the same perspective as if you just go into the movies or something, you know, so he still wanted to have an aspect of that this year for this festival. So there will still be some Zoom type of uh, things that will take place, some panels and things, but there will still be some people here in town. So I think that's kind of a cool thing that they were still just wanting to have, you know, as much of that film festival aspect of it as they could. Um, and, you know, I think it still sounds like they still have, you know, they've got films from local high school kids. They've got films from, uh, you know, universities. So there's a lot of... Uh, um, you know, there are international films at times, um, from places like Finland or Japan, you know, but it, I think the real cool thing about this festival is it really does put an, an aspect on Oklahoma filmmakers, you know, all the people who really, uh, you know, put the time in to make these films. And, you know, that's kind of the fun thing to talk with some of these directors is you, you really hear it is, you know, it's a broad production, you know, even for a zombie film, there's probably 50 to hundred people who were extras who all played zombies, you know, they're all in the cast list and everything. So it's just, you know, and you hear these kind of, you know, oh, we filmed this over two weeks, you know, I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping, you know, it's just a blur. And it's just kind of, you know, it's cool to hear the so much that goes into what, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's still a pretty big production, even though it might be smaller scale, there's still just a lot of people um, doing that. So I think it's, uh, it's still a cool thing that they're still going to have this year's festival, even though it's a little different than maybe years past. But it's a, it's a good time for them, because it's also a good time for the Oklahoma film industry. A lot of people are taking advantage of these incentives, tax credits, different things that they do for Oklahoma films. You know, we, right now they're shooting, um, uh, killers of the flower moon, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, they're calling it gray horse. That's the shooting oh, okay. name for yeah. it right now. But up in the Bartlesville, Pahuska area, they're, yeah. they're looking for extras. And I saw the other day, they're looking for native American people who are good drivers, who can learn how to drive complicated 1920s vehicles you know like where you have to shift on the column and you have to do all kinds of things that we don't do anymore yeah and, and, <laughs> and before law and we we of course had uh the matt damon vehicle stillwater which we have not seen movie, yet which i don't think they've announced a release date for that but we know that was shot here and around here so Tanner, didn't you, I mean, you wrote a story about the uh, zombie movie that's going to be part of the festival, right? Right, and that was kind of what was, you know, that that guy, he told me that, you know, there was a two-week shoot, um, but, you know, and he wasn't eating well, sleeping well. He said he has to remember through other people's memories of it, but, you know, it was really cool talking to him. His name's uh, Patrick Sean Bingham. Um and, you know, he had written this screenplay back in 2003, you know, and then so that kind of shows the process of, you know, the first things, and he, he really made a lot of... uh 
characters kind of aspects of parts of his personality parts of his experiences you know so but they filmed um at a lot of locations in oklahoma city they filmed at several buildings on the on the campus of uh, langston university um guthrie haunts um some places in downtown guthrie you know so there's a lot of local places that um you know it was kind of just cool to hear that they were you know filming something um you know pretty much at night you know when the students were off campus things like that you know so but it was just kind of cool that and then you know to hear local filmmakers using you know, uh, Oklahoma talent, Oklahoma production talent, you know, that things like that. So it's just, it's truly a, um, uh, you know, an Oklahoma production, um, the film called Zombactor, um, center city contagion. Um, so and this is one of their feature length films. Right. Right. Yeah. I think it's about a, a little over an hour, but, uh, I guess it's on Amazon prime now. And, um, Oh man. So, have to check you know, it out. yeah, I mean, that's kind of another cool thing is you, you know, about this festival is, I mean, there was, um, I think one screenplay written by Shia LaBeouf that a few years ago was in the Red Dirt Film Festival. Um, and honey, then, honey boy. Right. Yeah. And then that, that was in, I think, uh, Sundance, I believe, you know, it was in another, you know, uh, one of the more famous film festivals, you know, but it was in the one in Stillwater first, you know, so that was just, that's, that's kind of cool. one of those cool things that, you know, there's almost maybe a progression of certain films that, you know make their way through this film festival and end up being, you know, something that maybe a big company buys or something one day, you know? So that's just kind of the cool aspect of having a local film festival that, you know, really does have a lot of high end production, a lot of high end people coming in, you know, so it's pretty exciting. That is cool. And, you know, and you were talking about the Oklahoma film uh, industry and haven't they turned the Cox convention center into a soundstage now? I, I actually saw something about that. I believe there's a, a soundstage facility going in in Oklahoma City. Hmm. That's great. I, it'd be a great time to get on, you know, on that any way you can. I don't if you right. if you knew a way to produce film or host things or create a studio of of any be kind. Be a yeah. key grip, and whatever that go. does. Because <laughs> a, a lot of what they do, they do hire uh, local talent, uh, local. Yeah, engineers, all the all those kind of things. Yeah, um, something else we talked about last week was uh, vaccinations and yes, what you know we wanted to know what kind of success we were having around here. But Michelle talked; she was or she was on a press call with the Bureau of, of Indian Affairs, and that's one of the great success stories I think in our entire country is how well tribes have handled vaccination distribution what did you learn on your call well yes i did learn that that the tribes are doing a, a very good job with it there was a representative from uh, indian health service who is in charge of the region that covers uh, navajo land basically the the navajo nation and i mean you know of course it, they made the news early on because they were being ravaged by the pandemic and there were a lot of concerns about that because you know in the on the navajo reservation not a lot of infrastructure people live in very rural areas um you know you have a lot of elders who live there and there's been a lot of uh, concern within the native community about losing our elders simply because you know they're the ones who know more of the traditions. They're the ones who have more knowledge of the language. And so every time you lose an elder, you are losing an incredibly valuable cultural resource as well. You're losing a little bit of your culture. And so that's really felt like kind of a cultural crisis as well as a health crisis. Um, but anyway, in the, in the Navajo Nation, they have worked very, very hard to turn it around. And they are to the point where at least 70% of the people on the reserve area have had at least their first shot. 
uh, and now they're focusing on getting everyone that second shot and they're doing, um, you know, a really targeted approach. They've, um, they've got strike teams that basically go out and it sounds threatening, but it's not. <laughs> they're just health strike teams or vaccination strike teams that go out to the really rural areas because there are people, you know, on the Navajo reservation who um, they live in places that are not easily accessible. The roads are not good. They're in very, very remote areas and they're hard to reach. Um, you would hope that that would lessen their risk a little bit, but it's no guarantee. But anyway, so these strike teams are going out and they're uh, through their home health program and they are utilizing the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which only requires one dose. How did they get that? Right. In a very targeted way. Uh, because, uh, basically in Indian country, what, what I heard was that they are this, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is of course a new player on the scene. Uh, some people, uh, you know, worry that, you know, because it's overall uh, efficacy is supposed to be a little bit lower percentage, right? But that factors in a lot of the variants that were already circulating as it was being tested. But it only requires the one dose. So it's being used in jails. It's u- being used in rehab centers. It's being used in other places where people live in group settings. And it's being used for people who live in very rural areas where it might be hard to reach them to get them the second dose on time. Hmm. So the Navajo Nation has done very, very well with that. In Oklahoma, uh, IHS has a territory that covers all of Oklahoma, Kansas, and a portion of Texas. Wow. A total of 49 tribes. So it's it's a big area. There are a lot of people to deal with. Each tribal clinic uh, can, if it meets certain standards, can sign up to uh, be a vaccine provider. And in our area, a lot of them are doing that. And I, one thing that it really uh, stood out for me is how much the tribes serve the general communities that they're around. And we've talked about this before, about you know economic issues. Tribe, tribal governments can be real economic drivers for the areas where they're located. They provide employment for a lot of people who aren't necessarily on the tribal roles. So, uh, and now they're providing health care. Down in uh, Perkins, you know, the Iowa tribe runs the Perkins uh, Health Clinic. And mm-hmm. they are providing vaccinations for everyone, Indian and non-Indian. And which, the same is which, true in a lot of places. Which also speaks to their success, meaning they've hit, they've had to have hit a great percentage of tribal members to be able to offer that outside of the tribe, I would think. Well, I think it you means know. you've definitely at least hit your elders, right? Yeah. You've at mm-hmm. least hit the really high-risk people, and now you're expanding. Uh, yeah, because in some of the in some of the tribal areas, they've opened it up to anyone of any age who is approved to receive the vaccine. Uh, you don't necessarily, you know, so not necessarily that state, those state tiers that they've been following. Um, I was trying to think there was another point I was going to make about that. Oh, oh, overall in Indian country, the rate of vaccination is um, around 36 or 38 percent, though. Is this nationwide? If you look at nationwide. Okay. If you look at nationwide, and that includes um, uh, Native Americans, Alaska Natives as well. So there are some really remote areas up in Alaska. In a large. Exactly. <laughs> large area. But it's, it's very comparable with the rest of the population. So, you know, there are certain pockets where they're really, really, uh, really, really killing it and really hitting it hard. But some of those are areas where they were being decimated. And then overall, at least staying up with maybe a little bit ahead of the rest of the country. All right. And I think uh, another thing we we're going to talk about um, for a lot of people 
March 11th, this past Thursday, was sort of a, an anniversary for when everything hit home on the pandemic because that was when the Thunder game was paused or and then canceled and it started this domino effect in major American sports and that was you know right here playing out in front of all of us we sort of take a look at this like our our anniversary would kind of be the first uh, Payne County case but before I before I jump to that since I got Chris here who is actually You've actually ridden in the Mid-South, right? I mean... Uh, yeah, multiple yeah. times. I helped uh, the last... <laughs> and, until right. this year, I was the person up on a tall ladder helping to hang yeah. the uh, the finish line banners and all that stuff 20 feet up in the air you know, early in the morning. So, yeah, I've been really involved. Which is, which is our um, huge gravel race and mm-hmm. for cyclists. And that was also the you know we're also coming up on that anniversary they're doing that this year and it was really our last kind of big community gathering you know it it happened i think just the the week before that thunder game as well mm-hmm. but they were already sort of trying to do the socially distance distance thing that you know they were they were taking what precautions they could it was we didn't know a lot of the science you know we didn't mm-hmm. know a lot of those things but they were still being careful and this year it's a little bit different right yeah i mean so uh, this year, they've called it now the uh, the incredibly socially distanced mid south, and uh, so there's no there's no organized event going on here. Um, there's no big stage with a band. There's not even though some people are thinking I guess uh, Zanotti's new outdoor dining area is a stage. It's not a stage. It's a it's an outdoor patio effectively. Um, what they did is they partnered with uh, about, I think, around 10 uh, other bike shops around the country, Texas, California, Arkansas, um, all over the place. And those bike shops went and created uh, a gravel route. These are all kind of shops also that are kind of within the, the gravel scene and, and gravel uh, you know areas of the country. So if you are, say, you're near Austin, Texas, you can go on they call it ride with gps but there's an app so you can go through and you can see all the routes um that you can ride in so if there's one near you so say you live in missouri for example and there's not one in missouri you could you know maybe you and a couple friends go down to arkansas and go ride that route um and then they also so they had a they started with that and this is really what is interesting about the community that they've built over the years Um, because as soon as they announced hey here's these routes that these other bike shops are going to be that they kind of put together it's it's fully unsupported nobody's out there to pick you up if you break your bike there's no jeeps out there playing in the mud uh, to to come rescue you like this is all 100% self-supported which is the actual like grassroot nature of these entire gravel events and um and so some people were like, well, I'm up here in Canada. Uh, I don't, there's not one of the bike shops near me. And they're like, okay, well, go make yourself a route. And so people have now put their own routes. And so they call them grass routes and, or, or grass roots. And, um, and so it's kind of turned into this uh, truly the incredibly socially distanced. A bunch of people are going to be effectively uh, riding their bikes this weekend, they have uh, today, um, tomorrow, and Sunday 
to get their their ride done. They record it, um, they upload it, and then they get entered in to like win some things and stuff like that. And there's actually a guy from Tulsa who came down last night. So it's supposed to rain here this weekend, which would normally be completely normal for the Mid-South. It's also, you could call it the Mud South. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah. about half the time, it's just sloppy, right? Yes. I mean, yeah. That it, it didn't, it was not originally intended that way. That was one of those things that that first year it turned into mud and some people just absolutely were like, yeah, I'm not coming back. I'm not, why would I ride my bike to just break my bike or carry my bike? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then people were like, oh, and then the next year it was, it wasn't muddy and people were like disappointed. And, and uh, so luckily this time of the year, it's a good chance that there's going to be some mud out there. But, um, so we've got these storms coming in, and uh, this guy came in at midnight last, uh, well, this morning, and rode the 50-mile course before the rain <laughs> and all that stuff would hit today so he could qualify and get it done. So I think he might be the first finisher, uh, at least here locally, of, uh, of some of the routes. So oh, it's wow. pretty cool. And it's not a, not a time, I mean, you can time yourself. It's not a, it's not a race in no. the race aspect. Yeah, there's no, no going to be placing. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think they're, I think they're just trying to, which is, I mean, there's part of that race that there's very much like, I mean, we got like former professionals, Tour de France level riders coming to Stillwater, Oklahoma to ride our roads. But the majority of the race are people that are just there to, uh, complete it that the challenge is completing it not beating you know another rider and so uh this year it's there's that challenge again i know uh, i signed up to do the 50 mile uh i have not ridden my bike in three months <laughs> so oh. so uh and with the weather uh this weekend i think you know i think i'm just gonna we're just going to push that one off a little bit further, wait till it's a little bit nicer and, and build back up uh, to riding. So it's one of those things that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a community of people that are still going to try enjoy riding bikes together, but not together. Not too close together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I bet you here in Stillwater, uh, of course, you'll probably be hearing this after the event, but I, I bet you there's still probably going to be a, a few people that come in from out of town to to ride the roads. They're going up to uh, Pawnee this year is the halfway point for the 100 mile. And for the 50 mile, the halfway point is in Glencoe. So this is the first time that the route has gone northeast. It's always kind of been south, southwest. Um, so it'll be fun. I saw a picture of uh, VFW Road, which is mm -hmm. part of the route, and it looks pretty hairy. Yes. <laughs> That that road for a long time has been like, oh, we got to get this on the route. I mean, it's it's not. I mean, it's it's Jeep level territory for four wheel drive. You know, to to get up and down that, and you're gonna do it on a bicycle. But like you said, that's that's part of the challenge, right? It's that people is. are challenging themselves, their physical and mental dexterity. You know, they want to even even if they have to pick up their bikes and carry it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, do you guys remember a few years ago that, uh, what was it, the bike blog? I can't remember the name of the bike blog or vlog, but they did that kind of a spoof video. They said they were training for, for the race, which, you know, was under a different name at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was just a guy running through mud puddles and carrying his bike. 
that was the whole thing, you know, and, and it was kind of the joke, but it really, I mean, it really underscored that the challenge, the gnarliness of it, the mm-hmm. difficulty of it was part of the appeal. It's, it's like, it's if you could do it, you're really a great event for photos, oh, photographers. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of them, a lot of them come, I think there might even be uh, one out on the course uh, this weekend, trying to just catch anybody out there riding. Um, but yeah, it's a fantastic event that he brings in uh, in the past has brought in thousands. Um, and it, it was something that they wanted to grow. You know, they, we've, we've talked about bikes, but there's also a running event and there's a 50 K too. Um, and that's still happening too. And, and that's another one where normally that 50 K course, you would have some aid stations and stuff out there, no aid stations. So if you're going to do it, you either have some friends out there, you know, hanging out, uh, waiting for you to, to come by to reload on water and food. Um, uh, or I guess you're going to be catching some rain. What about the double? I mean, there's like a, oh, a yeah. that endurance thing for the ultra endurance. There's the ultra endurance event where you're basically running an ultra marathon and then you ride your bike 100 miles the next day. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't know if there's I don't think there's an officially uh, a double event, but I'm sure there will be somebody, at least here locally, that will go and uh, try attempt to run the 50K and ride the 100 mile. I haven't I haven't heard, but I bet you there'll there'll be somebody that tries that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, like we said, March and April it had always been a, a big time of year here for sports and events and, and things like that. And they're not always gonna go the same. I can't say it's a really good time to be a sports fan. Uh, I think your two, you know, your two big months are, are March and October. Um, and it's a really good time to be a sports fan for OSU or Stillwater. Uh, Stillwater um, just came off a wrestling state championship, six individual titles. I think they're only 12 weights. I think so. That's like half the, half the kids who wrestle ended up winning a, a title for Stillwater. And wow. then we got, uh, OSU has nine wrestlers going to the NCAA championships. And of course, basketball, uh, baseball, you got a top 15 team for OSU. You got a top 10 team in softball that, I want to talk about basketball because real quick, we got two teams that are likely going to be in the NCAA tournament. Tanner came up in the sports world. I'll put it to him. What is going on with OSU men's basketball, right? How, how are they going to play this whole NCAA sanction thing? Right. I mean, I know that they've basically got banned from the tournament last year, but I think what they can essentially try to do is appeal it, which will allow them to play it which then maybe the NCAA comes back after that and said, nope, you weren't eligible because of these infractions, but maybe it doesn't matter at that point because the, you know, the games will have already been played. But, you know, that was one thing about this year's OSU basketball, you know, just environment was just, not, you know, not having the, the rowdiness at, at Gallagher-Ipa was probably just, you know, this, this was the perfect year for that where you have the number one recruit coming in who has been talked about like he might be the number one overall pick in the draft, which would be a huge thing for OSU sports. I don't think that's happened for decades that an OSU athlete has accomplished that, you know, but, you know, the teams have been playing real well. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about John Littell and the women's program first. Um, you know, he took over 10 years ago following the plane crash of Kurt, Bu- uh, uh, Kurt Bucky, Marana Cerna, and, 
you know, he's basically, he's been there since, but he was just named the uh, uh, Big 12 Coach of the Year. Um, the Cowgirls have had an amazing conference year. So it's, it's this just, is, this it's is just, after their leading scorer transferring out. Right. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, it's just, it's been an exciting year for the OSU basketball programs, both the men's and women's. Even the Stillwater High girls basketball team um, went to uh, and played in the postseason for the first time in a long time. So, you know, it's just been a, it's been a fun year f- on the hardwood here in Stillwater for sure. And it'll be exciting to see how OSU can uh, keep playing going into the tournaments. Two good teams going in. So we are. We talked a little bit. Uh, our main upcoming thing, I think, is sort of a sort of a pandemic retrospective. I mean, Michelle, what do you remember of that timeline? I because I remember we were always, yeah, we were a little bit on edge, but we knew it at some point we Stillwater was going to have their first case. And when that happened, we had already prepared for these sort of trigger levels, right? Right. Uh, one case would, would trigger something within the city and within the county. And that happened a year ago, Sunday. What, <laughs> what, what happened when we, when we heard that? I think it was, I think it was, um, I think it was Stillwater Medical who just put that out to say, hey, we, we have uh, our first confirmed case. And then we got our, um, declaration from the mayor. How, 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 yeah, how do you remember that shaking down? Well, I mean, basically, you know, we got our first case pretty early because we were, the, the case in Stillwater, at that point, there were only seven cases in the entire state. Wow. So before that, it had been like, oh, yeah, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, whatever. They're big towns. You know, they got a lot of people. And then all of a sudden, boom, Stillwater, Payne County. Here it is. Right. So that was kind of a that was a wake up call for us, I think. And that immediately triggered a you know, before that it had been like, be cautious. And that triggered a partial shutdown of city facilities. They kept City Hall open, but they shut down the Senior Activity Center. They shut down the Community Center. They canceled all events. They canceled all permits for events that would have been public. So if it would have happened the week before the Mid-South, the Mid-South wouldn't have been able to happen. Yeah, I was actually... uh, So the mayor volunteers to help set up the finish line and all that stuff. And I think also uh, Representative Ranson was there. And so we're moving barricades and setting stuff up. And of course, you know, none of us are wearing masks. None of that had kind of happened yet. And, uh, but I mean, he did mention, he's like, this, this seems kind of weird that, you know, all these kind of people are here and everybody, and in the Mid-South had went and said, okay, everybody let's, and, and a lot of people didn't come last year, you know, right. didn't travel in. And, uh, and yes, it definitely very much felt like as soon as that race was over the next day, it was like, everything's changed. And that's kind of what happened. I mean, the, uh, you know, the senior nutrition program is still giving to go meals. So, I mean, but you know, after that, the dominoes just started falling. Right. I mean, it just seemed like every, as every new case came along, you know, we had the, the mask mandate that didn't last very long because it was part of an emergency order and there was a lot of consternation uh, associated with that and then we had you know later on the shutdown of esen- of non-essential businesses so you know that through all like the the nail salons the spas the the hair salons you know hairstylists i really felt bad for people who depended on on that t- providing that type of service for their living yeah. Uh, bars, because that was really tough bars and restaurants you know uh, we watched you know the local restaurants uh, pivot as quickly as they could 
to focusing on carry out or curbside delivery, more of our retailers started doing curbside pickup. And our bars attempted to be grocery stores. They did. We had at least one that, you know, had just opened not too long before that, mm-hmm. that had to become a grocery store suddenly because you couldn't find food. And I remember that, you know, the owner figured out that he could get the supplies from his commercial vendor. Mm-hmm. And so he was buying toilet paper and he was buying big packages of staples and breaking, you know, industrial or, you know, the commercial size packages and breaking them up for household use. Um, you I, know. I had almost forgotten about the great toilet paper shortage. Remember that? <laughs> Remember when no one could find toilet paper? That seems like so, or, or ground beef. Yes. Yeah, so many things. That, <laughs> right. You know, a hundred years from now, that's what this is all going to be called. The great toilet be, paper yeah. shortage. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, just, I remember at least three times I went to four to five different places specifically to find toilet paper and couldn't find it anywhere. You know, oh. CVS, Walgreens, so all weird. three Walmarts, you know, it was just the strangest thing. And, you know, it, it just felt surreal, didn't it? It did. And <laughs> you go and there's nothing. Just the shelves are empty and it was... Right? It was post-apocalyptic, you know, it, you know, with the lack of stuff on the shelves. It really was, you know. So. I felt that way, too. I started feeling really anxious because, you know, having grown up in a time of relative peace and prosperity, you know, I'm used to, you know, you go to a store and anything you want is basically there. You can go to a big box store and no matter what it is, no matter what you need, you're probably going to find it. In five and, different brands. Exactly. And so the idea of walking into a store and literally not being able to buy a roll of toilet paper or having basic things like chicken or mm-hmm. ground beef or whatever completely out of stock to where you could not purchase it. It was just not available and people were waiting. You're like side-eyeing hovering. those paper towels be like, Ex- could I? Exactly. <laughs> to, the, city, the city actually put out a statement saying, please don't use those flushable wipes because they're not actually flushable. They don't Mm -hmm. degrade and they clog up our system. I mean, it was just a weird, weird time. But I remember looking at those shelves and and feeling a little bit scared because it made me realize for the first time that all of this comfort and plenty that we've always known is more precarious than we realize. It's more, we're more vulnerable than we realize that we are. Because we're more connected, you know? Yes. If, if, uh, if ships start going, going across the ocean, <laughs> things, all kinds of things start stopping. Sure. And we're part of a, a global economy now. But anyway, so yeah, it's just been, and now we're kind of going gradually back the other way, right? Now we're gradually reopening more and more. Uh, some people are more anxious to reopen than others. Some people want to move a little bit faster than others for various reasons, but we're getting there. People are getting vaccinated and we're getting there. So it feels like we're starting to move. It's what before it was like, it's the end of the beginning. Maybe it's not the beginning of the is anyway. And now it feels like we're maybe the beginning of the end. Mm-hmm. An anxious time. I mean, it it's, is. <laughs> especially when it's kind of coincides with pollen season in. Oh. So y- you were constantly thinking, Oh, is this it? Is this it? I got, you know, I have or what's ha- this, this tickle in my throat. Mm-hmm. Is this it? Or having to reassure, reassure other people that every time you clear your throat or cough, that it's not COVID. I, I remember, I can't tell you how many times I've said, I have seasonal allergies. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's where we are. But um, we'll be looking back at all that next week, right? Yeah. I can't say I necessarily look forward to it, but it'll, it'll be... 
kind of interesting to see it all laid out there in black and white. So hopefully folks will pick that up and give us their thoughts, you know, what they were going through at the time. I think that's going to do it. So thank you everyone for joining us in the newsroom uh, with Chris Peters, uh, Michelle Charles, Tanner Halvar, and I've been Bo Simmons. Thank you. <laughs>